1: Hello, I'm Nathan Smith, a host for the New Books Network. I have the pleasure today to speak with Jonathan Layal, Assistant Professor of English at the University of Southern California, about his book, Dreams in Double Time on Race, Freedom, and Bebop, which was published by Duke University Press last month. Before going any further, I want to note that the track that was just playing, Dreams of Autumn, is a companion piece to this text that the author and Brandon Guerra co-wrote. Although I'm going to put this track aside for the moment, and don't worry, we will get back to it, I just wanted to briefly note a transition that occurred in my listening as I lived with this track over the summer. Jonathan shared the track with me before I received the book from the press. So as I dove in feeling relatively in the dark, I unreflectively brought with me the tools acquired through my music school education. I heard the reworking of the jazz standard Autumn Leaves and drew stylistic comparisons to other recordings and musicians. For instance, I remember being particularly struck by how the piano captivated me in a similar way to how Tigran Hamasian does, in its ability to paradoxically feel wispy yet rhythmically driven. And when the drums came in shortly after, I was pleasantly reminded of the opening track from Kurt Rosenwinkel's Star of Jupiter, where a floating introduction similarly takes off with the drums into a driving groove that bristles with both urgency and control. And so went my completely fine bit of music criticism. However, once the text arrived and I began reading, those unreflective music school tools and habits quickly appeared to me again the next time I heard the track, but with a marked difference. I noticed them. I noticed my complacency in letting them run unchecked in a purely musical plane. Once more, I had just come off a semester of TAing a course um, on the history of jazz since roughly 1945, in which I had repeated conversations with my students in discussion sessions about the limitations and problematics that arose from the professor structuring the course around the notion of stylistic development. As such, I thought, You know, the discussions from that class, and not to mention my own dissertation research on race and jazz, had primed me to be generous and listen for the gaps, the exclusions, and the histories in these works. But I defaulted and missed the dreams contained within. Put differently and a bit more abstractly, I was never in the dark when I first heard the track. The darkness appears only after light has been carefully bracketed out. Its constructed absence, a habitual clearing. Now, this isn't to say that there's a way out of darkness in which we could merely bask in the light. We need our various clearings, our ways of making space for community and interaction with the world. However, it is a calling to attend to the ramifications of our clearings, the communities they enable and foreclose, the histories of violence they enact, and the delicate work of renegotiating their boundaries with care. So, bringing us back down to Earth, This is not to say that developments of style and their comparison are useless, but Jonathan's text and track serve as a powerful reminder for me to return to and reopen up my listening to or with the outside. This is an iterative process after all. But my brief recounting of a journey through listening pales in depth and complexity to those undertaken by Jonathan in this text. To steal some good words from the inside flap, In Dreams in Double Time, Jonathan Leal examines how the music revolution of bebop opened up new futures for racialized and minoritized communities. Blending lyrical nonfiction with transdisciplinary critique and moving beyond standard black-white binary narratives of jazz history, Leal focuses on the stories and experiences of three musicians um, and writers of color, James Araki a Japanese-American multi-instrumentalist, soldier translator, and literature and folklore scholar. Raul Salinas, a Chicano poet, jazz critic, and longtime activist who endured the U.S. carceral system for over a decade. And Harold Wing, an Afro-Chinese American drummer, pianist, and songwriter who performed with bebop pioneers before working as as a public servant. Leal foregrounds that for these men and their collaborators, Bebop was an effectively and intellectually powerful force that helped them build community and dream new social possibilities. Bebop's complexity and radicality, uh, Leal contends, made it possible for those like Araki, Salinas, and Wing, who grappled daily with state-sanctioned violence to challenge a racially supremacist imperial nation all, why he, all while hearing and making the world anew.
0: And with that, Jonathan, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Nathan. That's a powerful introduction. I really appreciate it. No, it, it was
1: it was. I've never done an introduction before. This was I was reading the book and I was just like reflecting on how I was experiencing the track, and it it, it flowed effort, effortlessly from the interaction with the text. So it was it was a work of Love isn't quite the word, but like it was, it was easily done, and it felt. <laughs> I, I wanted to express it. It was. It was
0: you, you definitely helped bring that out. Well, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate that. It's always a gift to have anyone read or listen to anything that that you make, because as we mm-hmm. know, time and attention are precious things. So I'm grateful mm-hmm. that uh, it's landed with you.
1: No, oh, it has. But but enough about me. Can you
0: say a few things about yourself and how you got into this project? absolutely yeah well again thank you so much for having me on the show i really appreciate it um a little bit about me i am an artist scholar i live in los angeles now and uh, i'm interested in how music can help us defamiliarize the norms of the world norms that we've inherited essentially Uh, i was trained as a percussionist and later as an interdisciplinary humanist in graduate school and i've been active as a musician for about 16 years and a lot of the work that I do across the different sectors that, I, that I'm in focuses on the horizons of underground and avant-garde music cultures. And the questions that I'm interested in are things like, you know, what are these histories that we've inherited, you know, as human beings, as creators, as practitioners of society? What are these histories and how can music making help us grapple with them? How can creative engagements with the past help us hear futures or social arrangements that haven't yet arrived or been imagined? And then really importantly, who has consistently been denied the status of the human in this world that we've been born into? And how can that violence be addressed through things like creative practice? So those are things that I'm interested in, and they're questions that have emerged from many years of collaboration with other musicians through studies and scholarship. I, but I think most importantly, uh, from the very first place that I ever knew as a place, which was the U S Mexico border. It's a region known as the Rio Grande Valley, which is right at the edge of South Texas and Northern Mexico. And it's a deeply rich and complicated place, bicultural, bilingual, heavily militarized and surveilled, Deeply under-resourced, it's a space of exception, and it's also incredibly beautiful. Uh, And so thinking about that geography and the different questions that it inspires animates a lot of the work that I do across uh, traditions and across spaces. And it's brought me closer to um, a lot of people that I love, including my late grandfather, Octaviano Gonzalez Ortano, uh, who, as you know, is, is part of the book, Dreams in Double Time, and uh, whose storytelling and memory I tried to weave through the the whole text. Uh, so yeah, it's a good good preview, I guess, of coming attractions.
1: Yeah, no, and that's that was. I think we start off with uh, is it you and your, your your grandfather's saxophone or or just his record collection? Uh,
0: is that me and uh, it, it's 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 me and my grandfather's saxophone. That's right. Oh. Uh, and I actually have that instrument here with me now in my apartment. Oh, great! Yeah.
1: Cool. Well, no, I mean, thank you. This, I mean, that's a, a beautiful introduction. And it's fun to hear how, how all these things articulated in like a more you know conversational format. Because all yeah. that stuff, um, you know, as you're, as as the introduction introductory blurb kind of like talked about, was you you kind of blend this self reflective nonfiction. So a lot of this is is baked into into your work in such a like an interesting way. Um, Which actually kind of leads me to my first question, uh, which is before turning to like the actual contents of the book, um, I just wanted to note how much I enjoyed how each of your chapters or each of the chapters in this text was structured something like a reverie in which an object, your grandfather's saxophone or a memory in your present opened up into the rich history it evidenced before at the end coming back to wrap up in the present again showing the continued resonance of this black radical expression. Um, Could you tell us a little bit more about how you approached the writing of this work?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And, and thank you again for, for commenting on that. I think for me, the form of this book was an argument as much of the, as much as the content was. And I can talk about that. um, I was thinking about it a, a little earlier today. I can, I can talk about that in, in three different ways. Um, the first being the personal and then the practical and then the conceptual. So for the personal element, uh, my grandfather, um, Tony Urtano, uh he was known in our family for telling these winding and intricate stories <laughs> that would captivate us captive listeners uh, in his family living room. And he had this wonderful knack for interweaving them such that the arrival point of one story was somehow also the setup for another. It was incredibly smooth. He would sit back in his recliner uh, and, you know, some someone in the living room would prompt him, you know, to, to, to remember something from his past. And, and he would recall people he'd met on his travels and miraculous happenings that seemed outlandish, but actually were true. And so he was the keeper and animator of a lot of stories and all of them were rooted in memory. And I grew up with his narrative voice in my ears. And so uh, for this book, which is you know my first long form book project, I really wanted to try and learn from that uh, tradition of storytelling. Um, now, practically, <laughs> Uh, it was very difficult. <laughs> um, so yeah. It, yeah. It right, like, thank you. It, like, thank it, you.
1: It, I, I was constantly in awe of like, man, the, you know, like the, the conceptual framing that needs to be in place to like pull this off. It was, it was fantastically executed and yeah, I was very, I loved it. So go thank, on.
0: Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I mean again, like as, as natural and intimate as that mode of narration can feel, again, I'd never written a long form project and certainly not one that aspired to capture that. And so it took many, many drafts to arrive at what became the final form. Um, and cause as you mentioned, there's a lot of interweaving between present moment and past or what we call the past. And, Practically, that meant lots of color-coded files in my overstuffed Scrivener document to kind of remind me of where I was temporarily for each scene and um, and to give me a sense of what the pacing was. Um, and I was also using a pretty... Uh, it felt very natural, but in retrospect, it's kind of an intense methodology of working with lots of different types of materials. So there was audio recordings and vinyl records and cassettes and things that I would import from different places, liner notes, concert and album reviews. Uh, I would transcribe the solos and other parts that I was writing about off of these records, and in some cases, learn how to play them. Uh, Cover art, I spent a lot of time in archives, reading through personal letters and unpublished fragments, uh, looking through news articles. And I conducted a, a number of personal interviews for this too. So there's just a, a wide range of, of the actual raw material, I guess, if you want to say that. And so um, finding and curating all that material and then analyzing it and then finding the way to thread it all into something that felt, um, felt again, like it reminded me of my, of my grandfather and the way that he would tell a story. Uh, it was it was a lot of work and so I'm, I'm very grateful for the patience of the small village of people who helped me you know uh, through that process um and i, I just want to say too the the last part of this about this so I, I i started by saying that the the form of the book is its own argument um, so the 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 book obviously is nominally about music and what it can do for us and what it has done for people but uh, at its core, it's necessarily about memory. It's about acts of recollection. It's about artistic reanimation, and in a lot of nonfiction historical writing, and particularly nonfiction historical writing that occurs in academic space, there there is a tendency to downplay that one is actually writing from a present moment. Um, it's happening factually. Uh, you are, we are at a present moment, but there's a there's a tendency to downplay it, um, and. Uh, There are a lot of intellectual historical reasons for that. Um, There is a kind of pressure to achieve the rhetoric of certainty, right? The sheen of the infallible expert. Um, But that approach has never quite sat with me very well. Uh, I think it's connected to narratives of mastery that uh, in many ways this book is trying to 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 respond to and and deconstruct through its decentering of heroic virtuosity, um, so really I just wanted to 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 find a way of capturing you know both the here and now and also the elsewhere and the else when, um, because something about telling a story in that way or or conveying an argument in that way felt like it was appropriate for for this particular um, for this particular narrative.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No. And I, uh, I can't tell you how long I stared at the page when I was typing up this question. Um, and you have the questions there, the word contents is in quotes. Cause I'm like, I know this isn't the right, this, you know, like the, the book is playing with that. As you're saying this whole form content, um, the thing that kind of does its argumentation or like lays it bare, um, in the process of writing itself or you writing it, um, is, is such a crucial aspect that I, I, I eventually I just went, eh, come on, contents, just strategically, let's just say like the the ostensible stuff. Um, But no, it's, uh, yeah, it it doesn't do justice to how all of these things are deeply implicated and connected so so carefully throughout the text. Um, So no, yeah, thank you. All right. So we should probably start off with just some general stuff. Um, can you, can you briefly give the listeners an all too short overview of bebop? And it's okay if this is the, um, if you want to make straw man, isn't the right word, but if you kind of want to say, this is how the story normally goes, you know, like kind of the, this is the traditional thing that you're kind of tweaking with and playing with. Um, we we can put this
0: in, uh, put this all with a little bit of tongue in cheek. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Okay, so we're signing up for a full course. So we'll be here for 10 weeks with our syllabi. Um, (laughs) uh, So bebop, uh, or the better I think is um, the music that came to be called bebop by others. Uh, It was a a music that was uh, mid 20th century, uh, mid World War II, born of struggle and violence and necessity, born of black radical creativity. It was one of the most transformative musical inventions of the 20th century and uh, it spread across the world um, after it it emerged in the 1940s um, through the state department, through record distribution, and now it's a standard part of music education if you're doing anything with jazz in university settings. But before all of that, it was an underground black radical idiom without a name that was created by musicians who had grown tired. They were tired of industry constraints, tired of racial violence, and they were creating a new space for themselves after hours in um, the way that I'm putting it in the book is, is finding a new kind of unfettered dream space, right? Uh, so the story goes that um, the, the music kind of starts uh, at Minton's Playhouse on 118th Street in Harlem, or at least it was serving as the epicenter for that music. There was a house band that was put in place there by uh, Teddy Hill. And the band consisted of Kenny Clark, who was the drummer, Nick Fenton, who was a bassist, Joe Guy as a trumpet, and Thelonious Monk, who was the pianist. Um, And they were playing there um, uh, all the time, but during these lengthy after-hours Monday night meetups, they were able to push one another and to develop into new, uh, develop new habits and, and and expand into new sonic terrain, and really change the way that they were thinking about playing their instruments, um, from the way that folks would keep time on the drum set uh, to the way that folks would think about the function of a bass in a jazz combo. Um, you had musicians like Bud Powell and Merle Williams completely. Uh, changing the way that folks thought about possibilities on the piano. Um, And of course you had probably the two most famous uh, musicians associated with this tradition, Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker, who were developing these bombastic new solo vocabularies and were, um, were completely uh, changing what, what, what folks thought were, what was possible. And uh, there's, much, much that has been written about this, and and the first chapter of the book, uh, in earnest, is is really retelling this story and and trying to complicate it in some ways. Um, but an important part of this is that when this music was first being uh, brought into the world, it was heard by uh, a lot of folks who who have a possessive investment in whiteness, as George Lipsitz puts it, um, as noise, right? So it was. It was not considered music by some folks, and connected to that, uh, the people making the music were not considered um, fully human. Um, and the 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 sound of the music, its radicality, its its um, demonstrable intelligence, um, undeniable intelligence, I think was in many ways a very spirited response to that denial of humanity. Um, and again, it completely changed the way that a lot of people think about music. So today, if if you know if you're listening to jazz music or you're trying to get involved with it, um, if you're somebody who's marveling at folks like uh, JD Beck and Domi on Instagram or <laughs> uh, Tigran Hamasyan, like you mentioned, or other folks, every single one of those people has spent time, um, you know, learning some of that vocabulary. So it's with us still today. I was going to say probably including the two people currently on this podcast, um, <laughs> Absolutely. I
1: mean, you know, but like I, I learned court scale, scale theory. I learned how to do bebop changes and, you know, add, you know, add substitutions and mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. it kind of got solidified and, and there's a long history even behind that, that we don't need to go into right now, but of it's like, you know, institutionalization. And then you got like the right. neo, neo-conservative bot um, in the eighties. And yeah, it's a mm-hmm. long history. But yeah
0: mm-hmm. yeah absolutely and 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 right and that that story is is one that is is uh, dramatically important too both for for its own sake and knowing where the music has traveled but but also every one of those stories is a you know an entry point into understandings about how institutions work how racial capitalism works um how um economies of of uh, value work in relation to music makers and the work that they produce um and uh yeah so for every one of those uh for every one of those gestures that we learn in school if we're musicians um and we're finding our own voices i think it's you know as you as you're pointing to it's it's always important to contextualize one's own musical vocabularies and understand what we're indebted to yeah before
1: Yeah, no I mean that's that's great. And just uh I guess a l- little bit more context for the for the listeners is part of the like you know the, you, we hear bebop now and you know in some say se- in some sense it's become naturalized in a lot of ways and just it it is just you know it in some sense if you think jazz you're probably thinking of p- bebop or post bop or some you know some falling out of Um, This kind of like explosive moment, but so like part and to contextualize that, the idea of it sounding like noise, the thing that was coming before it was just swing, you know? So it was music you could dance to and bebop has, you know, you know, kind of like a very intellectual um, and breakneck speed, you know, approach to chord changes and everything. So, and it's, it's not, it's not a music that you can just go, oh yeah, I'm going to pop around and, you know, do the Lindy hop to or whatever, you know, like it, it was a, it was a jarring departure, especially from, uh, I guess what, you know, the mass culture at that time w- w- was expecting underneath something like the name jazz. Um, so, yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, so as you're kind of uh, alluding to, the story of bebop is often told within um, a black and white racial frame, right? This frame, of course, itself has a long history um, on both sides. Uh, Your work takes a slightly different approach. Um, Can you unpack for the listeners what you mean by differently racialized non-white people and how you are envisioning their relations and potentials for solidarity?
0: Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, Right. So, again, one of the things that I was trying to do with this book um, was... Again, thinking about somebody like my my grandfather, I have memories of him, uh, like me digging through his records and finding Charlie Parker um, LPs, and uh, him eventually telling me about about when he was trying to learn how to do some of that in the nineteen fifties. Um, but in all of the work that I had read, I didn't I didn't see a story like his, um, and it eventually led me to start thinking about the way that this particular history gets told, right? And you, you mentioned this this black-white binary. There are many reasons for a framing like that. And um, my book doesn't necessarily try to discount anything that has come before, it just tries to build on it. So again, the musicians who were creating the music, um, they were responding to this mainstream national fantasy of a white dominated monoculture in the context of wartime nationalism right and um and there were such strident um dismissals of that music from folks who had bought into the structures of whiteness uh and not just white folks but people who had a possessive investment in whiteness that um to tell the story of bebop historically it has it has meant doing so through this black, white, implicit framing. Um, and what I was interested in was, was just how transformative these black musicians after-hours experiments were for this whole generation of differently racialized people of color, right, in this very crucial period in American history. Um and that's what made me interested in the in the three main figures, alongside you know my own relationship with my grandfather, um, that they had these investments in black radical thinking and, and music making. They had investments in black radical musicians, and not just the music they made. And uh, they they were trying to think about how to create their own idioms, and so they were doing so by working through the prisms offered by. Uh, black striving, right? And trying to learn from it. And I think that stories like theirs, which this book tries to capture, um, are important because they cut through familiar expectations for how to think about a music like this and a history like this. Um, and I think it, it they do so in part because they draw our attention to two of the most insidious tactics of racial capitalism as a structural process. The first of which being this constant measuring of alleged distances of members of different groups to the very arbitrary ideal of the white male subject as the embodiment of reason and the literal, uh, ideal of humanness. Right. And then that second insidious tactic is the divide and conquer approach, which pits differently racialized non-white groups against one another and ultimately upholds, um, the idea of whiteness as, um, as the top of a hierarchy. And so I was just profoundly interested in, in how differently situated people um, who were variously marginalized by that idea of whiteness as the world was on fire, literally, uh, were engaging with black radicality and, um, and was then through that interest trying to learn something and hopefully carry it forward into the present uh, for myself to try to understand a world that's still on fire. And getting hotter every year. Exactly. Uh, Yeah. Uh, Just to take one of the
1: many, many fires that are going. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, no, and just uh, another, an interesting thing is, uh, in some sense, like some of the prehistory to like just up to that moment of like World War II is like they're going through a period of progressive consolidation, I guess you could say, of European whiteness at this time. Um, you know, like at various points in time, the you know Irish people, German people had been you know the, the others that were the lowest of the low, you know on, on white, you know uh, hierarchy, um, and in that first half um, of the 20th century, um, uh, Italians and Jewish people were slowly, you know, starting to consolidate as well and assimilate into this kind of like you know this building of this monolith of white versus black, which you're, you're kind of saying like in some sense, or, you know, that assimilation is first of all, I guess, never complete and never total. You know, there are definitely people who are um, within all of these various communities struggling with the issue of, you know, homogeneity and keeping traditions alive for themselves. Right. But so you take it and you, you look, you're like, let's putting those aside. here are other groups that are still um, even on the out outskirts of that uh that progressive you know consolidation yeah, yeah. or i what, what a painter call it uh, enlargement
0: mm-hmm. like i think their term is uh enlargements of whiteness right uh, yeah. Cool. right yeah and and absolutely that's that's absolutely true and and um and it's it's also uh you know no no mystery that that becomes accelerated um during this this uh this period of global war um you know may nye's concept of uh of wartime nationalism i think is really important for thinking about something like bebop and and racial politics and and um cultural history because it 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 allows us to see something like what you're describing of this the the enlargement of the category of whiteness um and you know the blackening of various groups of people and various nations um, into this kind of Manichaean us versus them, our side, you know, or not kind of idea that um, that only gets doubled down at, during times of war. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, no, and I,
1: I guess to kind of um, pull in a couple other terms from the book about this because. It, it's interesting because these are and this is something that I found so that I found so refreshing um, about your text is and this kind of gets us to the topic of dreaming. Because whenever I'm, I'm uh, you know, I'm, I'm doing my own research and I'm reading about the progressive assimilation of, you know, Jewish Americans, for instance, there's what I come up against so often are the tense struggles that that happen even between groups and in many many you know it's it might be something like um jewish americans attempting to create solidarity um with black americans at the same time as they're being indoctrinated into whiteness and that doesn't always create like a nice uh like the solidarity is kind of one-sided and there's a lot of like back and forth that happens in those cases so one thing about your book that i thought was so Generatives, instead of talking about this like history of failed solidarities, the concept of dreaming seems to be quite important. Um, in that, in that sense, in that you're you're looking for hopeful, you know, hopeful futures, attempts at solidarity, um, and ones that don't necessarily um, tie out in identity. You know, it's not. Oh, I've also suffered. Therefore, we we can we can be buds, you know. It's like no trying to hold together difference while still having unity. Yeah, absolutely. Talk a little bit about dreaming, double time. This Mm -hmm. this idea of like hoping the 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 hope for and the um, the very successes of this type of solidarity.
0: Yeah, I mean, again, I mean, really generative question, and really, really. difficult one and i think a question that that is worth just holding on to for a long period of time um i mean the way that i think about it uh again was because the project is so much about memory right i i um among the the stories that my grandfather would recount would be his dreams um and they would kind of get uh they would they would get woven into his, his other recollections in a way that was, was, uh, you know, very naturalized to me as, as a young person. And years later, when I'm, when I'm working on this book and trying to develop the concepts that feel like they'd be appropriate for the story, um, I found that thinking about dreaming across these different scales. So there's the scale of the individual person who, you know, is, is, you could think about actual dreaming when you're asleep, but it's it's more of just a, a state of being, um, a state of moving through the world that, um, again, looks at everything and tries to defamiliarize it. Like everything is strange and and therefore you can develop new concepts from it. So there's a scale of the individual, but there's also the scale of communities and collectives. And that's when politics and and dreams of better worlds together, I think, Come into the picture, and, and there is such a, especially you know within within um, you know black liberatory uh, narrative and politics, um, and 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 elsewhere in other communities, there is a strong tradition of folks thinking about dreaming in connection with hopeful possibilities, and so this book was trying to learn from that. And at the same time, trying to problematize the idea of the kind of utopic American dream or the the dream that's bound to the realization of the perfect nation state, and to say that 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 that's not that's <laughs> that's not what it's about. Um, and uh, and and I think uh, intentionally the 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 idea of a, of a, of dreaming is uh, it's defined in a few different ways throughout the book. Um, it, mo- it mostly appears as a motif. And, and, and that's, again, that, that formal decision is intentional um, because what are dreams if not things that refuse our categorization, you know, that are constantly eluding us, even as we're trying to remember them if we are first waking up and if it's something that has happened to us while we've been asleep. Uh, so to think about something like music, something like history through that figure uh, I think at least led me to, to some perspectives I wouldn't have otherwise come to. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, and I'm sorry. I, th- for those at home, I share some questions, but that one just kind of, I just kind of like pulled out of thin air. So I, I apologize for putting Jonathan on spot, spot there, but that's no, that's fantastic. Yeah. And it, and it is operating. Um, and it, it triggers another uh, aspect of your work in which, which we're going to, I guess, kind of get into in the next little bit, in which we move between individual, or like you, you kind of talked about, you know, individual dream and it's kind of like interface with perhaps a collective dream or collective hope or, you know, what have you. Um, but that also is in relation to, again, kind of the, the, those three big chapters, like the, the chapters of the, of the, of the text where you follow the, um, the three musicians and you're not so much just telling a biography of these people as you are trying to index where individual dreams or individual um circumstances speak to these larger communities
0: right yeah absolutely um I've, I've always been taken by the small mm-hmm. story that that can tell a larger story um and that's ultimately what i was trying to do and and in, in, in you know following the trajectories of those three musicians um and i think that um it was also again away from me cuz I, I i was working on this book for a long time but the 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 period in time of time in which it fully came together was during the high period of the pandemic um a lot of it was written in 2020 and um Again, I mean, the political unrest was what, what felt, it felt like it was unprecedented. It wasn't unprecedented, but it felt unprecedented. Um, you know, a lot of folks were, you know, we were out in the street. The movement for Black Lives was at its apex uh, globally. Um, and I, I found myself just trying to look back to, to different, individual people who were connected to their communities and try to find some wisdom in what they were experiencing and and hopefully translate that into, uh, into a story that could have equal contributions to, um, to scholarly conversations and and also to just folks who wanted to, to find some wisdom themselves. Cool. Let's uh,
1: let's dive into those uh, three quasi mini biographies. Um, uh, and, and I want to get a chance to hear about each, each of these musicians. So I'm only going to ask one question from each of the chapters. Um, but in your response, Jonathan, please rope in whatever you want from, you know, they, 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 you, you tell such rich stories of their lives. So I'm, I can only like pull out a little bit, but feel free to range. Um, so to start, What can the the story of James Araki tell us about technology and this idea of constructing a signature sound?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, James Araki was a really remarkable individual. Uh, He was Japanese-American multi-instrumentalist, you know, played trumpet, piano, saxophone, guitar, um, he wrote his own arrangements. Um, he was a he was a soldier, a translator uh, with the U.S. Army. Uh, eventually, he became a literature and folklore scholar um, who was credited by folks in Japan as helping introduce bebop to that context during the Allied occupation. So he was stationed there, um, and he was also somebody who was, uh, as I'm telling the story. Uh, experimenting with technology and with this black idiom of bebop in ways that articulated and asserted his own interiority and the interiority of people who he was in community with. And this, again, in a context where he and his family were uh, incarcerated. They were interned uh, at the Gila River Relocation Center um, in Arizona when he was in high school. And, um, you know, also in the context of, you know, the horrendous atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, and, you know, again, there being these diasporic connections, you know, between Iraqi and these different geographies. And so the, the, the chapter, you know, it tells, it tells his story, uh, which I'm very, very much abridging here. And, it is focalized around a record that he made uh, in 1959 which was called midnight jazz session and the story behind him making that record is he was on a fulbright he was a graduate student at the time in the united states it was after he was in the army and uh, he was on a fulbright and after hours much like the musicians in harlem you know a decade before a little more than a decade before Uh, He got his old crew of Japanese jazz musicians together in a studio and he had a a bunch of charts. And his concept was to create a record that utilized multi-track, overdubbing, recording techniques and technologies in ways that weren't really being explored all that much. Um, It was a really important record record. uh, Bill Evans I believe it was uh, conversations with myself that came out a number of years later and folks before him had been doing that as well in the U.S. context but um, but in his Japanese scene um, it wasn't a common practice at all and the thing that I found fascinating about that record it's full of standards uh, as well as some original compositions by, by Iraqi um, is that it forced me because he is a multi-instrumentalist and he's accompanying himself on some, on some songs, uh, comping on the piano while he's uh, soloing on the saxophone, for instance, um, where he's layered a number of different saxophone voices on top of his own to create a kind of uh, rich texture. Um, Things that feel very common today, uh, but were not at the time. Uh, It just led me to, to think again about the discourse around in, in, you know, creative music and jazz circles around the signature sound, right, as something that's fundamentally rooted in mono-instrumental practice. Um, If you're coming of age through music education, um, through jazz education, as it's been institutionalized, the, the ideal is usually to develop one's signature sound on one's instrument. And that sound is made up of you know uh, supposedly everything that you've ever heard you know all of the idioms that you've that you've so-called mastered um, and once you have it right then you have achieved a kind of identity um, and a lot of a lot of folks have started to to complicate that um, one of my favorite complications is by James Gordon Williams who's himself a pianist Um, and, and he's, and he and others have said that, you know, the sound keeps changing. Um, if you ever feel like you've arrived, you, you haven't, it's over. Um, you have to, you have to constantly keep evolving. But what I wasn't seeing was, you know, what happens if a sound, uh, italics on that, uh, is something that exists across a whole field of instruments. Um, when a sound is something that's explored in a studio context, um, what is that kind of relationship to a musical identity achieved through technological advancements? What does that do to the way that we think about, again, that narrative of being Japanese American uh, in the mid 20th century, uh, being a musician who's coming into oneself chiefly by playing a black radical music, um, what is what does that do for us and and for me again it was um a very personal its own signature way of responding to denials of humanness Mm -hmm. um to denials of humanity so there would be no way of listening to this music and number one assuming that this person doesn't have an identity or a sound and there's no way of listening to that music um that in any way would suggest that the person who made it, um, you know, isn't a full human being. Uh, so that's really what I was what I was interested in in this. And the chapter covers lots of different uh, terrain, um, and it tries to do justice to his life. But um, but yeah, maybe I'll stop there. Yeah,
1: no, that that that's I really, you know, in my in my brain, me like me trying to like make sense of. What all of like each 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 chapter kind of had like a comparison or in my in my head, like a comparison to something else. Um, And and I I really appreciate it because your discussion of this kind of like use of multi tracking as like. A a form of dispersal across multiple instruments, but also like a claim to um, like one's own identity that's kind of split in a way because it it contrasts so nicely and you have a long footnote where you, you detail like the history of this, um, in jazz, right? Everything from, you know, uh, is it, uh, is it Nat King Cole's daughter singing with him or I'm trying to remember the exact track. There's some, um, yeah, famous ones, but also like, I, there's in no sense, like there's no, I, I see no crisis or hear no crisis of identity in like Les Paul, you know, where he's, you know, like you think of multi-tracking um, his, and it's called the new sound and like, it's unitary. It's, you know, he can play a million different guitars, but there isn't that sense of like dispersal um, and trying to find unity and solidity in that kind of dispersal, like in, in Les Paul, right? You know, it's just kind of like, I can do whatever I want, <laughs> you know, like I'm just going to slap a whole bunch of guitars together and it's going to be okay. I It doesn't, my my integrity is not challenged on a personal or collective level, you know?
0: Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and that's, again, one of the things I really appreciated about, about that record. It was, it was mailed to me by a musician I'd collaborated with who lives in Hyogo. And, um, and even that itself, you know, was, was its own, its own journey. I mean, again, uh, a quite, like building the archive for this, for this book was, was an undertaking for sure. Uh, but, but I think that, um, you know, it matters that there was a Japanese and he wasn't alone, but that there was a Japanese American, you know, um, at one point U S army member um, serviceman servicemen who was, you know, part of the, allied imperial force in Japan playing a black radical music trying to find himself. And to me that, that, that is something that cuts through so many different narratives and so so much different terrain. And it feels it's so specific. That, again, that's one of those, what seemed like a smaller story that forces us to, to again, defamiliarize the stories that we've grown up hearing about, about, all of these different categories.
1: Yeah, no, and it's strategic and as useful and well if, for. I guess it's for good and bad as the uh, the black white binary telling. Whether it's being you know, de- what depending on who's wielding it, um, whether it's strategic or kind of you know, it can have an essentialist side too. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't do anywhere near enough justice to this exact thing. What you, like what you just said about this, you know, the, the layers and the complicated, like, yeah, it's, yeah, it, it, it was beautiful. And just like, it was great having that first chapter just kind of like pop open that thing. I'm like, oh my God, yeah, this, we need much more detail than, than something so, so reductionist, but you yeah. know, yeah, cool. All right. So much ink has been spilled on the various attempts to capture um, the energy of bebop in writing. Um, and for instance, I, I, you cited them and I, I worked with Phil Ford at Indiana. I've heard plenty about the Beats and their extractive privileged attempts at capturing the present and you know, stuff like that, as well as a number of critics. But how does Raul Salinas, Salinas's work Differ from such other writers, um, and what can you tell us about carceral
0: temporality? Great, great question. Um, so, Raul Salinas, he was a, a Mexican American poet. Uh, he was also born in Texas, uh, like me, and I think he was born in the same year as my grandfather, actually, in 1934. Um, he was a jazz critic, a jazz fan. He was a longtime activist, um, and. He was a person who was incarcerated. Uh, I first learned of his work when I was 23 years old, and I was pretty stunned to realize that, um, that he was also 23 years old when he was sent to prison for the first time. And I've sat with that for a number of years, you know, trying to think about that level of, um, I don't know, personal connection to something. It's the a, it's, it's a personal connection of a reader, um, not, not a, a family member or anything like that. But one thing that has always stuck out to me about Salinas' writing while he was in prison uh, was the way that he would try to, um, again, that a lot of his writing was steeped in memory, um, that it was very place-specific, place-bound, that it was um, informed very deeply by this music that he was so affected by. Uh, throughout his life. Um, But I was really moved by the ways that he would try to write in a way that felt like it was him trying to write like Thelonious Monk sounded for instance, or, or the way Charlie Parker sounded. And it was very different from what beat poets like, you know, Jack Kerouac were doing. It was, if there was a beat poet who, who was much more in line with what Salinas was aspiring to, it would be somebody like Bob Kaufman. Um, but what Salinas was trying to do as he was writing poetry from behind bars in the various places that he was incarcerated in Leavenworth, Soledad, Huntsville, Marion federal penitentiary um, and he spent about 12 years in total in, in, in prison. Um, one of the things that he was doing was was taking very seriously you know the the radicality of these black articulations of being, and using them to think about what it meant for him, not just to be a Mexican American, not just to be a Mexican American, and as he puts it, the most racist prisons in the country, uh, but to be in community, in prison, uh, enduring the carceral time of prison punishment. Um, with people who were black, right? With people who were variously positioned, and so through music, he came to think about his own incarceration, uh, and and directly ideas of freedom, um, you know, in a way that comes through in his writing, in a in in a manner that you don't see from the the beat writers who were just socially in much more privileged positions, right? One of the things that that phil ford writes about um and this is something that the chapter the chapter dives into uh is the idea of treating writing as um as existing in this subordinated position to the to the real world so it's always playing catch up and uh if you're thinking about things like spontaneous improvisation then the writing is just almost acting like an audio recorder Um, and you know, there's a lot of interesting work that can come from that. Um, you know, the, there's, there's a lot of interesting work that comes from thinking about capital N now, right. As the privileged thing that you should be striving to, to capture as a, as a writer, who's in the moment of something. Um, but again, thinking about somebody like this poet, you know, if your now wasn't so great, um what 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 other what other things can writing do for you and what other things can it bear witness to and so the the the, the this this material was actually the very first material I ever wrote for this project um, it's it's been with me for you know for 10 years now and um, I think that in reading Salinas's work and thinking about it I I knew I had to get better as a writer to try to, to try to do justice to even telling a fraction of the stories that, that his life gives us.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, and there's that chapter felt like it had the, like part of it, just there were so many parts that needed to be unpacked all the various times of um, getting out, coming back in, becoming an activist, um, the reception of his work. There was so much going on there that it, like, it doesn't surprise me that this has been a longstanding thing for you.
0: Yeah. 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 Thank you. And, you know, and, and with all of these stories too, I mean, one of the things that I say up in the, in the introduction is that, um, and again, it is a refusal of this, uh, of this narrative of certainty uh, and, you know, in infallible expertise is that um, I would never presume to try to capture every detail of someone's life. Uh, I don't even, I don't even know any, I don't We're opaque to ourselves. How can we presume to know that about others? Um, so I, I just want to say too, that this, these are, these are um, stories that haven't been told about these folks, um, but they're not the only stories that could be told.
1: Yeah. Yeah. they would be kind of antithetical to um, some of the larger arguments of your book, you know, just to like, like lay that out as, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I had a very um, happy surprise w- um, when reading this chapter um, based on just this is like almost certain, like just circumstantial um, based on my own research. You have that photocopy of Did Charlie Have a Horn um, poem from 1958 um and i was so i was i was absolutely tickled it just like hit me out of left field you know um we're in the last stanza or the second to last stanza the the listening field finally dug something real instead of corn um and all because charlie had horn um, but my my research is actually on corn and he has it in all bull or all capital <laughs> one. the one three exclamation points i'm like yes uh corn is uh corn's alive in as like a as a, as still an operative an operative uh figure all the way yeah 58 which is kind of cool so yeah absolutely um, that's just inconsequential but it, i was absolutely tickled by that
0: <laughs> and i'm so glad that you that you caught that and yeah. um yeah and and there's still a um uh a, a book that's waiting to be to, to be made. Um, I don't, I don't think it's, it's, it's for me to do at this point, but, uh, a book to be made. That is, that is truly the, the collection of all of the, all of the jazz writing that, that he produced. Um, yeah. and, uh, and there is a lot of it. Um, some of it has been published. A lot of it also exists on CDs. Um, oh, yeah. right. 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 And, and so, um, I mean, with any of these figures too, I mean, um, there there is such an excess of material um so it's it's always nice when the things that are included in a story like this you know they have these unexpected resonances
1: yeah yeah absolutely yeah no and you and you also like you know i, I just you, you said that there's still a project to be done and it sounds like that's actually a project if i'm remembering correctly that he started um, yes he, he was compiling like here's some poems i wrote here's some you know he had that uh uh, criticism like jazz criticism like article mm-hmm. in like mm-hmm. a, in a local um prison newspaper kind of community newspaper in and out yeah. um what, what was it called jazz johns
0: jazz johns that's right yeah,
1: yeah yeah well for anyone else out there who's looking for looking for a, a, a nice project so, <laughs> yes jump on so, i'd be interested in hearing more so. yeah all right um jump to the third chapter here mm-hmm. or the third musician um, so throughout the life of uh, Harold Wing, you sketch out something like a practice of active and receptive accompaniment. So how did his work as a drummer and pianist unfold and shape his later work in community organizing?
0: Again, really great question. Um, Harold Wing was, um, again, he was an Afro-Chinese-American drummer and pianist. He was also multi-instrumentalist like, like Iraqi. Uh, and he, he's, he's interesting in terms of this trio of people in that he was the closest, both geographically and personally, to the musicians who created what came to be called bebop. He actually played with Charlie Parker. He played with Dizzy Gillespie, with Errol Garner, Miles Davis, Bud Powell, uh, made records with Babs Gonzalez. Uh, and it was always as, um, as an accompanist, right? And so I was really interested in thinking, thinking, um, you know, carefully about that. Oh, I should also mention he, uh, he co-wrote a song with Ella Fitzgerald um, and it was recorded yeah. with uh, the Psy Oliver Orchestra. Yeah, uh, that's great. And, uh, Yeah. And, and that, that song. That's a, a it's, big thing. That's not a small yeah, no, it's, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's like he, he did so much and, yeah, and, he and uh, he's also a name that, that many, many people don't know. Yeah. And so uh, I became really interested in, in listening for, you know, that kind of minerness um, and, and the ways that listening for it can maybe say a few major things. Um, as a drummer myself, I was really interested in the ways that he would accompany people. And so this is the chapter that involved the most um, transcription and actually playing along to some of the pieces, um, just to try to feel it in my own body right to to get a sense for the beat and for time um and the arrival point of all of this was a, you know a, a, a re um reconfiguration for myself of the phrase among others um and you know the way that that phrase often gets used um especially you know in market logics is if you have to make a list of musicians it usually comes at the end um, to to signal that there are other people who are not named and they become anonymized uh, in, in that gesture. And it's necessary at a certain level. You can't just keep on creating a, uh, an exp- exponentially longer and longer list. Um, but, but it implies a hierarchy, right? There are some people who, who should get named and other people who just inevitably won't. And I was interested in that and its relationship to the idea of being among others, right, to being in community with other people. And I thought that that Wing's work as a musician, uh, and the ways that it fed into him being a public servant, working for the city of Newark in the immediate aftermath of the Newark uprisings uh, in the late 60s, um, the way that he carried some of the the principles that he learned as a drummer as an accompanist as a songwriter into that role and was trying to create opportunities for others to sound good literally to, to have uh, opportunities for other musicians to play in different places i thought was a um, a direct you know um connection of sensibilities and um and again Going back to some of the stuff we were talking about earlier, I think that kind of approach fundamentally decenters this idea of the heroic virtuoso musician as being the primary figure in stories about bebop. Um, you know, what does it mean to be communally virtuosic? <laughs> to be a, a virtuosic accompanist um, yeah. to really to really be able to support someone else as they're trying to work something out. Yeah. Um, that's really what this what this uh what this chapter is about and as it as it moves through the various records and, and activities that that wing was involved in
1: yeah no absolutely um yeah no and that bringing up that idea again of kind of like the uh, you know the the creative genius type thing um one thing that i that runs through the text um that i haven't pulled out of each of these and. Uh, you know, maybe maybe if you want to say a few words on it, um, I mean, it comes, you know, partially from your like involvement with, um, especially black feminist thought as well. But gender is obviously a big, uh, component of this masculinist image of like virtuosic instrumental soloist type thing. Um, I don't know if you want to briefly, uh, mention a little bit about gender throughout I mean it weaves in and out throughout the book as all of these issues do.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, the and and there's no way really of talking about gender without talking about race as well. I mean, I think that's one of the things that that I try to to come back to over and over again is is um, you know, the thinking about gender through not not um, you know, not just uh the structures of patriarchy but to think about the structures of patriarchy through racialized masculinities. Uh, and so, you know, for somebody like Wing, who, you know, was, uh, was Afro-Chinese, you know, what it, what it meant for him um, to, you know, what, what something like the, the sparring session, you know, means for somebody who's positioned that way. Um, he also, you know, he, he had a, you know, the a pejorative nickname that, you know, I, I won't say aloud that he, uh, that he used as his sort of nom de musique. Um, but it's not something that he chose initially for himself. It was something that he just got in the community. Um, and so I, I think that there, there is no way of, of thinking about listening, thinking about being in the world without thinking about gender. And, um, again, uh, in a, in a story about a music that, historically has been treated through a black white binary right to to break that open and, and to think about um you know all of the chromaticism i guess you want to say of 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 um world experience uh you know you're necessarily thinking about and talking about gender and the way that different spaces and activities are gendered and so um yeah i think i think uh i th- I, I think that that the, the project works to do that as much as it can.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No. And, and, you know, part of that is, you know, bebop is often, or, you know, the music unfortunately referred to as bebop, I mean, it's often presented with such a, you know, and for st- strategic reasons that you're kind of saying like um, with Williams, like he doesn't necessarily have, like he didn't choose his nickname or not, not Williams, sorry, wing. Um, that's part of his yeah he didn't necessarily choose that right but he had to contend with and embody it and that goes for you know the, the strategic hyper masculinity of a lot of these things where race comes crashing in with gender and it runs throughout the entire book not just in this last bit um but yeah no and and even on a um even a broader sense you know there's the the musicians who you know like later in you know the bebop and post-bop eras that had their conflicting relationships or opinions of louis armstrong which is a different type of like there you know him working within the structures of blackness masculinity etc that you know the you know that in in many you know and a lot of these people ended up kind of turning away from um, but it's not necessarily one's own choosing how you get to present yourself to the world and that's part of the um the horrors of the of this type of like you know, violent structure is that you 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 have to contend with it and, you know you know um uh, wing wing did in his own way in a way that you know was reclam- reclamatory is that the right word yeah
0: yeah, yeah that's um, the right well, word but you know what I mean? yeah, yeah yeah no exactly it's yeah. it's um again it's it's really all about you know us being born into worlds we did not create and how do we how do we seek and and hopefully find various measures of freedom within that inheritance
1: yeah yeah absolutely
0: cool um is there
1: anything else um i mean this like i said we're just pulling like little little bits out here um, Are there any other strands that you want to bring out for us? I, I'm conscious of the time; I've already had you for an hour and ten minutes almost. So, oh my gosh, time yeah, flies! Time flies. Yeah. <laughs> we can talk forever. There's no upper limit here.
0: But, you know, it's a uh, it's around dinner time over there on the West Coast. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I really appreciate it. I think that um, if there was again, you know, the the single thing to for me, that makes this project as personal as it is, uh, is is that you know it it is a story that emerged from uh, both from wonder and from grief. Um, you know, so my my grandfather, who you know was a, a, a hero of of mine, uh, he he died uh, while I was finishing this, and when when I was really. Really completing it, um, and it thinking about with thinking with him and and about his life, um, you know, asking this question of you know what did my grandfather, who was this Mexican American man from the U.S. Mexico border, you know, who loved everything from Tejano classics like Freddie Fender and Chelo Silva to Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie, when he was reaching for those records and when he was picking up his saxophone what was he dreaming of right um what what was he hearing in that music what was it doing for him um and so thinking about that and threading that you know in a writerly way throughout the book and using it as the the beginning and end of the of the whole thing um made it very personal to me and it also makes it an even more unusual book about bebop in that um it's a, it's a story about a music that emerges from Harlem, but it starts and ends at the U S Mexico border.
1: Yeah. 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 No. And I mean, that's actually an excellent segue if I can, Mm -hmm. um, to your own dreams, um, with dreams in August. I mean, this is, you know, this is a tradition that's obviously still informing and underwriting your own creative process. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So can you tell us about the track?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the So the track, uh, it's a reimagining of the classic jazz standard Autumn Leaves um, from 1945 by the composer Joseph Cosma. And um, it's been, everybody's done this, this tune in their different ways. Um, this one was a collaboration between myself and uh, my dear friend Brandon Guerra, who um, works uh, at a jazz club in San Antonio called Jazz Texas and also runs a studio there called Rocketfoot. Um, and it was ch- primarily us and then um, involved Jason Galbraith on tenor saxophone, who's just an absolute monster, um, Sam Panky and Tyler Jackson on upright bass, and then Matt Mally did the mixing and mastering. And And while we were creating it, the idea was to... Uh, bridge some of the radical vocabularies of what's been called bebop with strategies that all of us use in our kind of contemporary improvised musics together. Um, So to really dramatize, you know, in musical form, what the book does, which is this conversation between the present and the past in a very direct way. Um, And we were super excited with how it turned out. And it built on work that Brandon and I had done and uh, as well as Jason and other, and other folks involved with this uh, had done in uh, the summer and fall of 2022, we had a a record that we finished called after now, which was um, again, a concern with temporality and, and was uh, a project that was, was asking conceptually a lot of the questions that ended up appearing in dreams in double time. So I think, for for me, and I know for others who work in this vein, um, you know, others who, who are committed to being artist scholars, uh, that there is there is no separation, really, you know, at the level of experience between channeling an idea or a dream into a piece of music or or into a sentence or a, or an essay or a book. Um, it's all t- an attempt to try to find language that can bear the weight of reality.
1: Yeah, no, that's beautiful. I mean, I, I don't even want to say anything after that. I just want to, <laughs> like. um, but but unfortunately, I have to. I have to say thank you um, both for the text, the track, your time talking to me right now. It's been, yeah. It's, it's thank been, you, thank you, you so, so much. It's it's been my pleasure. The the book was like it was like a breath of fresh air and everything I wanted in a text that was, you know, personal, but also collective and intimate, but also serious. And it, it was fantastic.
0: So. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate that, Nathan. And, and for all your great questions and observations today, I, I am excited to continue being in conversation.
1: Eh, I did what I could.
0: Um,
1: <laughs> oh, you'd you mentioned before,
0: before I let you go, that you have uh, something else coming up
1: that you're starting a new project, correct?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Just just talk a little. I want to hear. Yeah. Yeah. Just briefly. So, um, so the, the geography that I've been circling back to during this conversation, the Rio Grande Valley at the U S Mexico border. um, That is the, the focus of this new book project that I'm working on now, which is called wild tongue, a borderlands mixtape. And um, it is, is a, coming of age story, um, that its central question is essentially, what does it mean to come of age through music in a space of exception? And um, so there's a lot of music criticism, border theory, transnational cultural theory, engaging contemporary experiences for Latino folks uh, at that U.S.-Mexico border. And um, it's been really exciting working on it because it has taken me home quite a bit spend a lot of time with family and with musicians in studios and um i'm i'm as excited for it as i was when i was first getting started with with dreams and i'm excited to push myself further to see uh, to see what new formal possibilities can come from yeah. the writing of it no that's
1: that's incredible um i if you if you ever want to talk about that on here i'm always happy to, to have you or to like me personally to, to host this again but also <laughs> if you want to like if you would like help in finding someone that might like i don't know like someone someone in you know we have scholars that you know focus on um chicano or latinx you know ethnically um, hispanic cultures and those exact issues if you mm-hmm. if, if you want that to be the forum i'm also happy to help do what i can to mediate that and make you yeah make some connections
0: there great thank you so much yeah we should just have a big party
1: yeah yeah I would love
0: that (laughs) um but all right I think you need to eat and I kind of want to hear
1: uh you and Brandon play us out
0: great thank you so much again Nathan this has been wonderful my pleasure